All right, let's pray together. Let's ask God to bless this time as we give attention to His Word. Father, we come to You in the name of Jesus this morning, Lord. And we confess, God, our sinfulness, Lord, and our weakness, God. And our desperate need of You, Lord. Lord, You know and we know that so much of our spiritual life, Lord, is governed by seeing You rightly, God. And some of us, Lord, have learned this, God, that we are in a war to see You rightly, Lord, to see You as You are, as You have revealed Yourself, God, in truth. And we ask You to do that today, Lord, that You would remind us all across this room of who You are, Lord. That You would remind us of Your nature, God, and Your character and Your grace to us in Jesus Christ. God, we ask that that would come with power today. As we give attention to Your Word, that You, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, that You would reveal Yourself, Lord. Help us not to hear Your Word today as background noise. God, we ask You to open our eyes, Lord, that we may behold wondrous things from Your law. Overwhelm us today with Your beauty, Lord, and Your kindness to us in Jesus. Help us to see wonderful things, God. Look how weak we are, Lord. If You don't help us, God, we will not see And so as your children and in the name of Christ, God, we ask you to help us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm going to start with a provocative statement this morning. And uh, you might not know this, but the males at Grace Community Church that sit in close proximity... Uh, to, to Ryan and myself when we preach, they have a standing invitation. Um, they are uh, the heresy hunters of Grace Community Church. Okay, And what I mean by that is that the very millisecond um, that me and Ryan open our mouths and we say um, something that contradicts what God has said in this book, we fully expect it. So, you know, we're not prophets at Grace Community Church. Paul Sanduliak is about to tackle me if he gets to me before Charlie Nosco does. So we stand in this place week in and week out to give this church um, the words of God, not the words of man. Okay, and, it, and if any of you are feeling really zealous about that task at Grace Community Church, look at all these seats. In the front, every single week, you know, you can join this exclusive club of the heresy hunters of Grace Community Church. So I want to say that and I want to say this to put everybody, you know, on guard this morning that I'm going to give us a provocative statement. But before somebody tackles me this morning, let me unpack it. Okay, and here's the provocative statement in Genesis chapter 15. The God of the Bible is about to make his promises more sure. Okay, the God of the Bible is about to make his promises more sure. And the reason that that's a provocative statement and that ought to hit us like, wait a second. What is he saying is that's kind of like saying that we're about to make Fort Knox more secure. Okay, except it's like times a million. When we say that God is about to make his promises more sure. And that's a strange thing for us to hear as Christians, because one of the things that we affirm about God is that our God can never lie. It's impossible for him to lie. And so that means that his word is good always. Anytime that it comes out of his mouth, it'll never fall to the ground because he can never lie. And in spite of that truth, and that is true. I submit to you as Grace Community Church this morning that in Genesis chapter 15, God is making his promises more sure. And we're going to see how this passage 
uh, how this works out in our passage today. He's making his promises more sure. Last week we zoned in at the beginning of Genesis 15 on the offspring promise that God had made to Abram. And this week we're going to turn the corner and for the rest of this chapter we're going to zone in on the land promise that God has made to Abram. And what God is about to do in Genesis chapter 15 is he's, listen to me, he's about to seal that promise. And I want that word to mean a lot more to you than it did when you came in this morning. That God is about to seal his promise. And the way that that's going to happen in Genesis 15, the way that God is going to make his word more sure, the way that God is going to seal his promise is through this oath ceremony. We're going to read about this in just a moment. The Bible calls this cutting a covenant. Cutting a covenant. We're going to see this unfold in this story in Genesis chapter 15. And I want us to pay close attention to this story today. And, and, and this idea of covenant is a very important concept for us to grab a hold of. Um, as followers of Jesus Christ, because our God has ordained and has willed to relate to his people by covenant. He has bound himself to his people by covenant. And so if we can learn about the covenant, we can learn about how God has ordained to relate to his people. The covenant is like the framework by which God relates to his people. And so we need to learn this. Okay, We need to learn this well. As followers of Christ. And so you say this before we even read this today. Just give it to me simple. Okay, Dustin, just, you know, just give it to me really simple. What am I supposed to learn today? And if I could say that in just a phrase, you're supposed to learn something today about God's covenant. Okay, God wants you to learn something from Genesis 15 today about God's covenant. And let me qualify that with one qualifier. When we say today and always. When we say God wants you to learn something about his covenant today, we do not mean in an intellectual only way that if somebody were to hand you a piece of paper that you know which bubbles to mark on the scantron. That's not what we're talking about. Okay? When we say that God wants you to know about his covenant, we mean this extremely practical knowledge for a follower of Christ. And so God wants you to know something about his covenant today that makes a real discernible difference in your relationship to God. He wants to seal his promises to you. He wants to make his promises through his covenant. He wants to make them more sure. He wants to bolster and boost your confidence in his promises this morning. And so I want to let you know that's where we're going before we even get there today. That this is what this passage is after in our life. To increase our faith. It's, it's given to us for the full assurance of faith. And the promises of our God. So this is the word. Covenant. Okay. We're going to give attention to that word from start to finish this morning. And briefly I want to mention this. That if we're going to learn something about the covenant. We need to know some background. Because this is not just a word that's unique to the Bible. It shows up in a lot of other places in the ancient world. And that's an important concept for us to grab. Okay? That God took a picture that was already happening in the world. And God used that picture to reveal something about himself. And so, this, this word was very familiar to those in, in what we call the ancient Near East. The, the word covenant. Okay? This is how they formalize binding agreements. So in modern America, you know, when we formalize binding agreements, we do that with something called a legal contract. It's legally binding. And not exactly, but in similar ways when the ancient world uh, formalized these binding agreements between two parties, they did it through cutting a covenant. Through cutting a covenant. Okay? These were known as bonds of blood. And they were as serious as life and death. So listen closely to me. This might not sound exactly like that 
that uh, that legal contract that you signed with your you know mortgage broker or your mortgage banker. Okay, it's different. In some ways, it's similar, but in some ways, it's different. And one of the ways that is different is that it's a bond of blood. It is a matter of life and death. Okay, and so really, at at at, at the bare foundation of what's happening. As ancient peoples cut a covenant is more than anything else. What's happening is they're invoking a curse upon themselves. Okay, they invoked a curse upon themselves. And so the practice was this, that two parties came to agree about something. There were animal sacrifices that were divided in half. Those two parties passed through those animal sacrifices and they made oaths to each other. Okay? And at the end of their, their oath, they ratified the covenant. They cut the covenant with a phrase that sounded something like this. Passing through these divided animals. And they said, may God make me like these animals if I do not keep my word. May God make me like these slaughtered animals if I fail to keep this covenant. It was a bond of blood as serious as life and death, and the entire purpose was to invoke that curse. That's what made it so serious. A matter of life and death. And so God uses this picture in the ancient Near East. Uh, uses this picture of these covenants. And he reveals something. Okay, He used the picture that Abram would understand. He used the picture that Israel would understand. He used the picture that all the ancient Near East nations would understand. And he used the picture that we today, we can look back and we can study this and we can understand what God was intended to communicate in this oath ceremony that we see in Genesis chapter 15. And so I want to cover this text today under three headings. Okay, we're going to we're going to see that that Abram makes a request of God in Genesis 15. We're going to see that God responds to that request. And then we're going to spend most of our time this morning zoning in on something very specific about God's response to Abram. Okay? We're going to read this text in peace as we go this morning. So let's read it together. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 7. It says this. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? All right, let's stop right there. Let's get some things in our mind before we get to the meat of the passage. Okay. Our text this morning starts out with a question. Actually, it starts out with a promise. God gives Abram the land promise again. He's already given Abram the land promise in chapter 12. And he gives Abram the land promise again in verse 7. And then Abram asks him this question. How, yeah, yeah, but how am I to know that I'm going to possess that land? And I want you to think about this morning. Uh, this, this morning as followers of Christ. Is this an appropriate way for a sinful human being to talk to God? So I want you to see what happens. Verse 7, God says, I'll do this. And verse 8, Abram says, yeah, but how can I really know? How can I know that I'm going to possess this land? Is this an appropriate way for a sinful human being to talk to the one true God? And my answer to that question this morning is this. Mostly, no, that is not an appropriate way for sinful human beings to talk to God. But sometimes, yes, that can be an appropriate way for sinful human beings to talk to God. Let me unpack that for you this morning. When Jesus addressed... The unbelievers of this of his day in Matthew 16, he looks out upon them and he says this. You are an evil and unbelieving generation. And then he says, because they are seeking signs. I'll read that again. Matthew 16. He calls them an evil 
an adulterous generation seeking for a sign. And so from that passage and other passages in scriptures, we can make this conclusion. Okay, it is a sinful thing for a human being to ask God for a sign in order to believe. Okay, it is a sinful thing for a human being to ask God for a sign in order to believe. Sounds something like this. God, give me a sign and then I'll believe in you. It's, it's a picture of, of, of a sinful human being calling, attempting to call the one true God into the courtroom of man and saying, prove yourself to me and then I'll believe in you. That's a sinful thing. And it always has been a sinful and adulterous generation seeks for a sign in order to believe. Let me just stack something else right on top of that this morning. Is that Jesus went further than that. Okay? Not only did Jesus teach us that it's sinful to ask God for a sign in order to believe. Jesus taught us that the purpose of signs is not to create faith. That's not what they're even for. And so in this parable that Jesus gives us of what we call the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus tells this parable both die and they begin to discuss with each other. And in this place that uh, he calls Abram's bosom, Abraham's bosom. And listen to what he says in Luke chapter 16. This is picking up in the middle of this conversation between the, uh, the rich man, uh, Lazar, uh, the rich man and Abram and in this place of the dead. And basically this, this man, this rich man has lived his whole life to care less about God. And he woke up in hell. He died and he woke up in hell. And he begins to respond of somebody, please go tell my family. Um, and then they'll repent. And he's talking to Abraham about this in this place of the dead. And, and let's, let's zone in on this conversation. Luke 16, verse 30. Rich man says this. He says, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And then listen to how Abraham, Abraham responds. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they can be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Translation, signs don't create faith. Even if that sign was seeing someone raised from the dead. Signs don't create faith. Faith comes from a response to the word of God alone. The word of God creates faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The purpose of signs is not to take the place of God's word. The purpose of signs is to confirm God's word. And so signs can't create faith, but signs can confirm faith. Okay, so I want us to take this um, what we see here back into Genesis chapter 15. And as Abram is asking this question in verse eight, I do not believe test this for yourself. I do not believe that Abram is asking God in the same way that a sinful and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Okay, for two reasons. One is the previous context, and the second is the following context. I don't believe that that's what's happening here. The previous context, we what do we know about Abram? We know in verse 6 that he just believed God. He was just justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and then in the, in, the, in the verses that follow, God doesn't rebuke him at all. He's not corrected at all. Instead, God draws near to him. And reassures Abram of his promise. And I, I think something entirely different is happening here in verse 8. And what I see um, uh, Abram doing is he's coming to God in a similar way that this father came to Jesus in the Gospels. Mark chapter 9. This father came to Jesus with this phrase in his mouth. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe... Help my unbelief. I think that's exactly what Abram is doing in Genesis chapter 15, verse 8. He has faith already. We know that in verse 6. 
He is asking God to help his unbelief, to strengthen his faith. He's asking God to strengthen his assurance in that land promise. And I want us to see this. If that's what we have here, Genesis 15, a son of God struggling with doubt, wrestling to to believe God's promises even more, to strengthen his assurance in God's promises even more. If that's what we have here, then listen to how God responds. Verse 8, his question is this. His question is, how am I to know? How am I to know? And God actually responds to, to that request of Abram. God says, basically, this is how you know. Glance down uh, to verse 18 with me. And I want you to see this before we read this paragraph. What's happening in Genesis 15 is spelled out in these words in verse 18. God is making a covenant with Abram. So get that picture in your mind. Verse 8 Abram says, how am I to know? Verse 13, God says, know for certain. And then verse 18, God is making a covenant with Abram. And what I want us to see is that framework that the way that God draws near to his son that is struggling with doubt, the way that God draws near to his son that needs his assurance strengthened is God makes a covenant with him. This is how God makes his promises more sure in the lives of his children is through covenant. This is how God wants us to know for sure that we will inherit these things. It's all wrapped up in this word covenant. We're going to come back to this idea at the end of our time because this is the meat of what this passage means For us as the church of Jesus Christ, God has given us a covenant so that we can be fully assured that we will inherit the promises of God. Let's listen to how God responds in verse nine. Let's read this together. Genesis 15 verse nine. God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old. A turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these. Cut them in half. Laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses. Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down. A deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold. Dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I want us to see what's happening here in this paragraph. Abram's question is, how can I know for sure... And God does, he actually does more than that. God's going to make sure that Abram knows something for sure about inheriting the land promise. But God's going to actually give him specific details of how his offspring are going to inherit the promised land. Okay. God immediately tells him in response to his question, bring me sacrifices. That's basically what we see in Genesis 15. And this is the common language of covenant. These are, this, this, is, this is that common thing that's happening in the ancient world. Abram says, how can I know for sure? God says, bring me these sacrifices. And Abram knows that God is about to make a covenant with him. He divides them in half, lays them to the side, and he waits. 
He waits on God. He knows that this is what God is about to do. And he's waiting on the Lord. We're going to come back to this covenant ceremony in verse 17. But God does more than seal that promise. He actually gives Abram prophetic words of how this promise is going to happen. And and this is wrapped up in three prophecies that we see in Genesis chapter 15. And as we read these just really quickly together, I I want to remind us of what language like this reveals to us about our God. Because prophecy is something that happens beginning to end in this book that we call Scripture, the Word of God. And I don't want us to grow cold to this idea that we're about to read words, prophetic words, that God said, okay, this is going to happen. Got it? Fast forward several hundred years, and then they happen, okay? This happens all over the place in Scripture, that God tells humanity what's going to happen before it ever happens. And we're not talking about, you know, five minutes out or five days out. We're talking about this is what's going to happen in 400 years in, 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 in very descriptive detail. And then looking back on these prophecies, we know that they happened. God fulfilled his word. And I don't want us to grow cold to that and worship and miss a chance to worship God. Our God declares the end from the beginning. He declares the end from the beginning. He says things are going to happen. Then several hundred years later, they happen just as he said they were going to happen. Man can't do that. Only God does that. So let's let's, let's see these prophecies that God gives Abram about this land promise. Beginning in verse 12, he gives him a prophecy of Israel's suffering. Israel's suffering. This is the offspring of Abram. And he says, no for certain, basically, they're going to suffer. They're going to suffer. In fact, God tells him, tells Abram that for 400 years, his offspring are going to be in affliction. This is a prophecy of the children of Israel in Egyptian bondage, made to be Egyptian slaves. God said that was going to happen before it ever happened. That was not a surprise. As you're reading the Bible and you, and you jump from Genesis to Exodus, you're like, man, what's going to happen now? The people of God are in captivity. They're in slavery. They're being ruled over by Pharaoh. God told us that was going to happen. In Genesis chapter 15, he prophesied Egyptian slavery. And then it happened. Look at verse 14. There's a prophecy not only that his offspring are going to be enslaved, but there's a prophecy that God is going to bring them out of slavery. This is a twofold, um, twofold deal in Genesis chapter 15. God says this, I will judge the nation that afflicts them. That's a prophetic word from God that they're going into captivity, but I will judge the nation that afflicts them. This is a prophecy Of the ten plagues of judgment that God drops on the land of Egypt, on the king of Egypt named Pharaoh. And he breaks the grip of the king of Egypt on his people. And and over and over again, when, when the people of God look on that exodus from Egypt, they say that they came out of Egyptian bondage. That God brought them out with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. And so God is prophesying. 400 years before these plagues fall that I'm going to judge the nation that afflicts your offspring. And then he says in in chapter 15, he says, and they're going to come out with great possessions. And this is fulfilled. This prophecy is fulfilled in great detail. Not only did God judge the king of Egypt and the Pharaoh, the Bible tells us that the people of Egypt, the slaves Plundered the Egyptians, plundered them, that they walk out of Egypt with the riches of Egypt. That basically the pagans are saying, we see how mighty your God is. Take our stuff, take our wealth, just please get out of here and go worship your God. God promises what he's going to do 400 years and then God does it. God judged the nation that enslaved his people. In fact, the people of God 
watched the dead bodies of the army of Egypt washing on the shore. And they began to worship the one true God. Horse and rider has he cast into the sea. And they celebrated God's deliverance, God's judgment on this wicked nation and on this wicked king and God's gracious deliverance. And so here we have it. We have these prophecies of, of Abram. This is how your offspring are going to inherit the land. And we have one more prophecy. In Genesis chapter 15, we have a prophecy in verse 15 of Abram's death. Of Abram's death. And he's basically told this. You are going to live to a good old age, and then you're going to die. Okay? Like, man, that's a downer. You know? You're going to live to a good old age, and then you're going to die. And what that means is he's going to walk with God for a long time in this world, and then he's going to sleep the sleep of death, and they're going to put the man in the ground. Okay? And another way to say that prophecy is this. Abram. You are not going to possess the promised land. At least not in the way that you think you are. Okay? You're going to die. They're going to put you in the ground. You're going to sleep the sleep of death. And so as Abram is thinking about this land promise from this point forward, it's really clear. Okay? That from this point forward, Abram is not seeking a personal possession of the promised land. From this point forward, Abram sets his face to the heavens. He is seeking a, a true and better Canaan. He is seeking a heavenly city. And this is exactly what Hebrews looks back on Abram's life and tells us. Abram's not looking for an earthly fulfillment. Abram is looking for the fulfillment of a heavenly promise. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10 says this. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Let this be a lesson to us as the people of God, as the children of Abraham through the Lord Jesus Christ. If Abram did not look for a physical, earthly possession of the promised land, listen, neither should we. Neither should we. This thing is not being fulfilled uh, in, in an earthly, physical way. Our mind and our hearts are set to a heavenly city. Okay? Not the things of this world, but the things to come. That's really important. Okay? Whatever you're longing for to happen in this world, you better do the same thing that Abram did. That you are seeking and longing for the city whose designer and builder is God. So we have these prophecies and basically they're kicking out the fulfillment of this land promise for 400 years. And we might ask something like this. Why in the world? Like why in the world the delay? Like if you're promising me the land, why wait 400 years till possession of the land? And there's a surprising answer to that question in verse 16. God tells us exactly why there's a delay. Pay attention to the preposition in verse 16, the word for. That word is a God-inspired word that means this is why I'm delaying. This is why there's going to be a 400-year delay in inheriting the promised land. And listen to what he says. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now that phrase will mess with you. That phrase will mess with you. That God is talking about some stuff 400 years down the road. And he says at the end of that 400 years, the sin of the Amorites is going to be complete. But right now, the sin of the Amorites is not complete. Okay. And let's pause and let's think about this again. What does that phrase tell us about God? That the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. Number one, it tells us that God is sovereign over human sin. Human sin is not this huge, oh, I just don't know what I'm going to do about that. It's not, the, it's not the biggest problem in heaven. God is sovereign over human sin. This reveals to us how powerful the God of Scripture is. He is in the heavens, Psalm 115 verse 3. He is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. No exceptions, no qualifiers. That's how powerful he is. This is how sovereign he is. 
This phrase reveals to us that the one true God is sovereign over every detail of human history. The sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. He is on his throne in heaven ruling over all that he has made. The sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. God controls every detail of human history. Every detail of human history. And He is the one. He is the one that is sovereign over when one nation is blessed and when another nation is torn down. That's His prerogative. He's sovereign over that. If we get the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. That will mess with you. We do not come into this world thinking thoughts of God like that. We think that God is like we are, but He's not like we are. He is sovereign, has all power, all authority in heaven and on earth. And so what we do, uh, we're born with, with those similar thoughts all across this room. But what we do is as we read the Bible... We read these things and they press against the way that we think. And over and over and over again, we bow to God's word. We bow to the book of God is smarter than I am. Look, he says the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. Man, I didn't have any idea that God even ruled over human sin. But it seems to be clear enough right there. And we're, and, and we're constantly conformed in our minds to the image of Christ. So this reveals to us a powerful, sovereign God. But that's not all. This reveals to us a patient God, a patient God. That phrase, the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so think about what we know in Genesis about God and what God is like in the way that he judges sinners. And so rewind with me in your mind just a few chapters to to Genesis chapter 6. And in Genesis chapter 6, we're told that God destroyed the world. Okay? Destroyed the world with a flood. As a judgment on human sin. But Moses has told us very carefully that that judgment did not fall on the world until we're told in very carefully crafted words in Genesis 6. That the earth was totally corrupt. That the earth was totally corrupt. And then God brought the judgment. We get this idea of a patient God. Not just lashing out, having an angry spree. But a patient God, slow to anger, slow to judgment. But when His judgment falls, it is a just judgment. Even a few chapters later, God is about to destroy this wicked city of Sodom. He's about to burn it to the ground. Okay? Fire and brimstone are about to rain down from heaven and kill a bunch of people. And the God of the Bible does that. He judges sinners. But listen, Sodom is not destroyed until after we're made aware of this conversation between Abraham and God. And we're, and we're made aware that there's not even ten righteous people in that city that God burns to the ground. And it's not until we're made aware of that, that God's judgment is just. There's not even ten righteous men or righteous women in this city that God judges. And this is the same picture that we get in Genesis chapter 15. That God is going to judge the Amorites. God is going to destroy them. He's going to overthrow them. But listen, the, the text is very carefully worded. God is not going to do that until their sin is complete. This is a picture of the patience of God. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Listen to this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. But He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why that delay? That delay is due to the kindness of God. That God, the God of Scripture, yes, He judges the wicked, but He gives time for sinners to repent. 400 year delay shows us the kindness and the patience of our God. And this is still happening even today because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That the reason that we do not die the very millisecond that we sin, 
is because our God is patient. And He is not willing that any of us perish. He wants us to come to repentance. And this is why the delay. There's a delay in the death sentence for every sinful human being. God is giving us time to repent because God is patient. But what we see in Genesis chapter 15 is really clear. Okay? That, that don't get the attributes of God out of balance and out of order. That there is clearly revealed in Genesis 15. There is clearly revealed that there is a time where the patience of God runs out and there's no more patience. That's clearly revealed to us in this phrase. When the sin of the Amorite is complete. There is coming a time where there's no more patience and God's coming down with a righteous judgment on human sin. And that same principle applies to us. For every sinner that has not repented of their sins and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are alive, God is being patient with you. If you are alive, God is giving you an opportunity to repent. But be warned this morning that 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 is not a a, a never ending offer. There is a time where the patience of God runs out in your life and you die and you're done. And there's no more chance. There's no more chance to repent. All this is revealed to us in this phrase, the sin of the Amorite is not yet complete. That's why we have this delay, that God has a plan and God has a judgment that he's ordained, but it's not time for that judgment. So this is how the children of Israel are going to possess the promised land. And let's keep reading. God then seals this land promise with this ceremony. Let's pick it up in verse 17. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your offspring, I will give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I'm going to give you the land. What I want us to see is this plague. In verse 17 through 21, that you have a ceremony, verse 17, that seals a promise in verse 18. This whole chapter is going together. There's not a separate thing happening at the beginning uh, than than that's happening at the end. They go together. And so I want us to give attention to this. You have this picture, these symbols, this fire pot and this flaming torch. And they're passing through the pieces. Okay? I'll mention this just very quick. Those are both symbolic representations of God. Okay? The fire pot and the flaming torch. In fact, you have to interpret the symbols of chapter 15 in light of the clear prophecies of chapter 15. Okay? That's a good way for you to understand it. The symbols are not pointing to something different than the prophecies are pointing to. They're pointing to the same thing. Okay? And so most scholars agree on these details. That the sacrifice represents the children of Israel. Those birds of prey coming down represent the enemies of Israel. Okay? The fire pot that's burning with smoke passing through these sacrifices represents... God passing through in judgment. Picture of God's wrath on Israel's enemies. And God passing through in the flaming torch is a picture of God's deliverance for his people. Like the pillar of fire that accompanied the children of Israel in the Exodus. They're symbols that point to the same thing as God just announced with his prophecies. But let's, let's, let's draw our attention to one thing. Okay. There's one thing. So all of that is relatively um, relatively normal for covenants. I guess except the part with, you know, with, with fire pots and torches passing through. Um, that, 
but everything is relatively normal, okay? In, in what we see in verse 17, except for one thing, okay? And this is beautiful. This is the part that I'm excited for us to be encouraged by as Grace Community Church and as followers of Christ. Um, because normally, normally, in a covenant oath ceremony, both parties, listen, both parties are passing through these sacrifices and they make these mutual agreements. I will do this. You will do this. One says, God, make me like these animals if I don't keep my word. And the other says, yes, amen. May God make me like these animals if I don't keep my word. And both parties invoke that covenant curse upon themselves. But something very, very unique is happening in Genesis chapter 15. And the uniqueness is that when, uh, when, when there's a, in that ceremony, when they walk through the, the sacrifices that are divided, God walks by himself. God walks by himself. Where is Abram? Remember back how our passage first started. Abram is asleep on the ground. And God is walking by himself through these sacrifices. Okay? This gives us a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture. That God alone is taking the responsibility to fulfill his word. I want you to listen um, to what an Old Testament scholar, his name is Meredith Klein. I want you to listen to what he says about this. He says, God walked the path of death and summoned the curse of death upon himself. God walked the path of death and summoned the curse of death upon himself. And so I want you to picture this about God. I want you to locate yourself um, in the same place that Abram is in this story. Usually in scripture. When God wants to get our attention. And add some weight to his words. Some soberness to his words. You see this phrase. As I live declares the Lord. Fill in the blank. This is the complete opposite of that. Of God says I will do this. And may I die if I do not fulfill my word. And guess what? I can't die. And so in a moment, when God takes the curse upon himself, he makes that land promise as indestructible as God himself is. As eternal as God himself is. He binds his own name to that promise. So this is the picture that we get. This unilateral, one-sided covenant. Where God takes all the responsibility to fulfill his promise. Again, Abram brings nothing to the table. Where is Abram? He's laying on the ground asleep. And God is swearing uh, this death curse upon himself. That this word is sure. This word will never be broken. It's a picture of a unilateral covenant. Unilateral promise. Paul it's right there. And I want you to think about this, okay? Many times you have struggled with some form of doubt as a Christian, even to the severity of doubting your salvation, okay? Or uh, uh, doubt in some less severe form where you are struggling and fighting to trust God, okay? You are in a season of life where you need your assurance in the, in the promises of God to be strengthened. And so listen to me very carefully. I, I, I thought about this for a long time. I cannot think of anything more encouraging to anyone in that scenario than this picture of a unilateral promise and oath from God. I can't think of anything more encouraging than that. Listen to me. What this does, this unilateral oath does is it completely takes man and sidebars him and moves him out of the way. And the only thing that it leaves us with is a God who can never lie, who is sworn by his own name that says, I will do this, no qualifiers. It's the most encouraging thing that I can imagine. God shows us a picture of man asleep and God says, I will fulfill my promise. I will fulfill my promise. 
The land promises what he has in view. It's really clear in verse 18. And what I want us to see is that that ceremony in verse 17 sealed that promise. Okay? And God does that over and over again in Scripture. That He takes oaths and He makes covenants to seal His promises. To make them more sure. To make them more sure. Just like Abram would have been encouraged with this picture. You mean that God's going to do this? And if He does it, you know, that He's going to die and God can never die. Therefore, God is definitely going to give my offspring the land. In the same way, the covenants of God are meant to... Encourage us. Encourage us. Listen to this phrase in Hebrews chapter 6. You can turn there with me. In fact, I invite you to do that. This is how covenants work. They confirm promises. Hebrews chapter 6. We'll start in verse 17. It says this. So when God... Desire to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Full stop. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of his promise the unchangeable Character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. That's a covenant. He swore by his own name. He inflicted covenant uh, curses upon himself. He swears by an oath. This is what God does when he wants to make his promises more sure. He makes an oath. He makes a covenant. Listen. The next words in Hebrews 6 are so that. So that. And we get this parenthetical phrase that's picked up. At the end of uh, Hebrews 6, 18, God does this, this oath, this covenant, so that, listen, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And what that means is that God makes these oaths and these covenants for us, for the church of Christ, the people of God. Listen to what it says there. The oaths were given to who? To those who have fled to God for refuge. That's really important when we're talking about a unilateral covenant, that that unilateral covenant is given to believers. Those who have fled to God for refuge. Same truth that we see in Genesis chapter 15. The unilateral promise of God is given to Abram, the justified believer. Verse 6. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Very next move in God's word is I will fulfill my promise in your life while you're laying on the ground asleep. Unilateral promises of God are given to those who have fled to God for refuge. No unbeliever has any claim on these unilateral promises of God. They're only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once there is faith in Christ, that that is an unbreakable thing for a Christian. It is unbreakable. God has sworn it with an oath. He has he has sealed his promises with a covenant. Why? To give us strong encouragement to hold fast. So there's a question for you this morning. Are you using the covenants in the way that God has designed them to function in your life? They're supposed to give you strong encouragement. They're supposed to strengthen you in your, in your assurance to God. They're supposed to give you strong encouragement to hold fast to these promises that are ours in Christ. And so I want to encourage us with just a few things as we close this morning. That our God is a God of covenants. Okay? He is, a, he is a God that has he's binded himself to his people with oaths, with covenants, with sworn holy promises. This is who he is. Unbreakable promises. As strong as God himself is. As eternal as God himself is. As indestructible as God himself is. 
And, I, and what we have to do as followers of Christ, learning how to read the scripture, learning how to be encouraged in Christ, no matter where we're at in God's word, is we have to bring Genesis 15 home to us. We have to bring it home to us. We're supposed to be doing more than learning how God relates to Abram. We're supposed to be seeing principles of that and learning how God relates to us. And so I want to encourage you this morning that we have to see past this land promise that God gave to Abram and to his offspring. And we have to see forward. God has made us similar but better promises in Jesus Christ. He has promised us a new heaven and a new earth. And so we have to see past these, these initial promises in Genesis 15. And you have to apply that to what God has promised you. In Christ, He has promised you a new heaven and a new earth. And we have to look past even this promise of, of this covenant made with Abram. And, and we look past it to this glorious fulfillment of all these gracious covenants. And, and what the Bible calls the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And so if we want to learn... Uh, what God would have us to know about this passage, we have to see those things. That God has made promises to us and God has given uh, his, the final form of His covenant, the new covenant, to every believer in this room. God has coveted He has coveted, He gave His covenant to us. His sworn promises, His oath, He made them more sure in our life so that we would have strong encouragement to hold fast to the things of Jesus Christ. So the question, are you using it to that end? Are you using these covenants, the covenant that God has given us? Are you using it to that end? Think about this. Think about who your God is and giving you this gracious covenant. If God desired for Israel to know with certainty, with certainty, and that's what he's after with that phrase of I'm going to do this or I'm going to die. Okay, that's a pretty certain phrase. He wanted them to know with certainty, you will inherit the land. It will be just as I say, you're going to inherit Canaan. Turn the corner. How much more, how much more to us does God desire us to know with certainty that we're going to inherit the true and better Canaan, the heavenly city, the, the new heavens and the new earth? God wants you to know that with absolute certainty, absolute, take it to the bank, Feet planted in concrete. God wants that to be certain in your life. The book of Colossians calls, Colossians calls this the full assurance of faith. God wants that for you. That's the whole purpose of what the covenants are for. Is that we would grab a hold of these sworn oaths that God has given us. And so I just want to just make one more point before we go forward this morning. That when you think about this picture of who God is in Genesis 15... That instead of saying, as I live, says the Lord, he says, I will keep my word or may I become like this dead, slaughtered animal. I want us to think the only way that I can even dream of that that covenant could be any stronger than we see in Genesis chapter 15 is if the covenant would have been sealed with the blood of God himself. That's it. That's the only way that I can even dream that it could be any stronger than what we see in Genesis chapter 15. Is if the covenant was inaugurated and ratified with the blood of God himself. And do you know, brothers and sisters, that this is exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. That we have been given a covenant that has been sealed. Listen, not with the blood of animals, but with the blood of the incarnate son of God. And it ought to hit us with some soberness that God is more likely to waste the blood of Jesus Christ than he is to break his covenant with his people. And that will never happen. It has been sealed with the blood of God himself. Acts chapter 20. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. This is what God has said about us. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 calls us the church of God. And then it says this. That he sealed, that he obtained with his own blood. We have been obtained with the blood of God himself. The son of God incarnate, the God man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that ought to encourage us that it is a finished thing. It is a sure thing. God has given us an oath, a sworn oath that he will not break his promises to us 
We have this eternal covenant in Jesus Christ. I want to mention one more thing before we're done this morning. If you go back in Genesis 15, in verse 18, God says to Abram, He says these words, I give this, I will give you this land. Verse 18. To your offspring, I give this land. If you look at your ESV footnote in your Bible, you will notice that the footnote says this. Alternate translation is, I have given this land to your offspring. What the translators are picking up on is this Hebrew verb has perfective aspect. That means there's a completed action in view. Okay? And so what God is actually saying, listen, this is powerful. Okay? What God is actually saying to Abram in verse 18 is, is it's, it's 400 years away, I just told you that, but it's already done. I've already given it to you. That's the way the promises of God work in Scripture. That the things that God has promised us, they're as good as ours. They're reckoned as already done. And I want to encourage you in a real specific way. God speaks to you in Christ the exact same way. Turn with me really quick to, to Romans chapter 8, verse 30. In Romans 8, verse 30, we have these words. All whom He justifies, He also glorifies. All who He justified, He also glorified. Be encouraged by this. There are no dropouts in the new covenant. Listen. All who are justified will also be glorified. No dropouts. Nobody's dropping out between justification and glorification. It is done. But listen. That text says more than that. That text does not say all who have been justified will be glorified. It says this. All who have been justified are also glorified. God speaks about that in the past tense. Nobody in this room has been glorified. Okay, You're not walking around with the radiance of the glory of Christ beaming off your face and your resurrection body. But God says that those, are, those promises are so certain to you in Jesus Christ that they're already done. They're already reckoned as done. Nobody's dropping out. So this is the strong assurance, the strong assurance of faith, the strong assurance that God has given us. And this is what he desires from his people. And it glorifies God when his children walk around in this world with full assurance of faith, fully convinced that what God has promised, he's going to make it good, fully convinced that I will receive the inheritance that I have been promised in Jesus Christ. Use these promises, use these covenants and to, to be strengthened in faith. This is what they were meant for. Sealed in the blood of Christ. I'll close with this question this morning. Brothers and sisters, what did we deserve? What did we deserve to have a God so faithful that unilaterally Saves us from sin. What did, what did you bring to the table to deserve a God who swears on your behalf but sidebars you and unilaterally promises uh, to bring about the, what He has promised to fulfill in your life? What did you deserve to have that kind of God that acts with that kind of authority in that unilateral way in your life? What did you bring to the table? What did you deserve? What did you deserve? And the answer to that question is really simple. You didn't bring anything to the table. You did nothing to merit this. In fact, God's word gives us this picture of Abram asleep on the ground to remind you that that's exactly how God works in your life. That you're not bringing anything to the table. You're not helping God finish his work in your life. There's something unilateral going on. That you're caught up in the midst of by grace. And what happens to a human being when they really lay a hold of that? I didn't bring anything to the table. And God is unilaterally at work in my life. It sets the stage for us to begin to worship God in a very specific way. And you hear this song ringing throughout eternity that the church sings to God. Listen closely to the words. Salvation 
belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Praise to our God. I'll say that one more time. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We bring nothing, nothing to the table. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we ask, Lord, that You would encourage us with Your Word. God, we know that these things were written for us on whom the end of the ages have come. And we want to learn, Lord. We want to see You rightly in Your Word. And God, we ask, Lord, that You would visit us with the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, and that You would help us to trust You more and more. God, whatever else we're known for as a church, God, let us be known for people that take You at Your Word, full of confidence in You and what You say. God, do this for Your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.